Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. All right, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? How the fuck are you? Did I forget to say, are we doing this? Well, we are doing it. I am Mark Marin. You are listening to WTF. I just got back from Max Fun Con up at Lake Arrowhead, uh, where Jesse Thorne from Jordan Jesse Go and from The Sound of Young America, basically, he acts as a sort of like, you know, he's a very magnanimous person and he's a wonderful guy, a great radio personality, but he runs this uh, two day summer camp for comedy nerds. And it was uh, spectacular. I performed up there with uh, Maria Bamford, now Madrigal, and Jimmy Pardo. I learned some things. I saw some people I didn't know, watched some podcasts, met some fans. It was great. It was a, a great time. And as I said up there, Jesse has helped me a great deal in setting up my podcast and getting everything going and getting the everything, telling me what mics to get, how to plug them in. And he's really been helpful. Very nice guy. I get up there and all of a sudden he's like, he's the guy in charge. It's Papa Jesse, and he is like the benevolent colonel of a uh, of the nerd plantation. It was very, uh, very fun. And uh, I just got back, just drove in, and I wanted to get this in the can. What am I going to tell you today? First of all, let's do this. I got to do it. Hold on. Pow! Oh, God. I just shit my pants. Justcoffee.coop. You can get that at WTFpod.com. Enjoy. I'm trying to think what I'm thinking about because I'm going to play for you an uh, interview I did with David Wayne. Many of you know David Wayne from the state if you were 12 and you, you've stayed with him since then. You stayed with him through Stella. You stayed with him through his, uh, his movies. And I interviewed him in New York. I ran into him in a coffee shop. And I got to be honest with you, I, you know, I've known him a long time. I've known those guys a long time. I always had a bit of a problem with those guys. And I'm starting to realize, as you know, and as you listen to me, that a lot of my problems are self-generated. Uh, they're selfish problems. They're spiteful problems. They're problems with jealousy and with this and with that, with all those things. And he was one of those guys that I was uh, jealous of, or I just uh, I couldn't understand the popularity. Why are these guys so damn popular? But we had a conversation about show business, and there's something about if you're a talented person or you have a skill, and you do that skill, Either you do it okay, or you do it once or twice, and you think you're good at it, and that's enough, or you you commit your life to it, and you do it. I know I've had these conversations with you before, but what I'm starting to learn in my life, and it's not an easy lesson to learn, is that generally people who have uh, success, uh, su- you know, continuing success at anything, the reason why they have it, uh, whether or not you think they deserve it or not, is because they fucking work hard. They work hard at it. And I'd like to think I, I've worked hard in my career, but I'll tell you, you know, there's a lot to, there's a lot of things that go along with working hard. Okay, I do this one thing. I do comedy. How do I get my comedy out there? Well, I need to get on television. How do I uh, get it on television? Well, I need to, to try to get an audition or I need to get my manager to talk to somebody. I need to, to get on television because the other guys are getting on television. I got to get on television. How do I get people to like me? I, well, that's a whole other, that's a whole other can of worms. But, you know, when you talk to people that have success in their life and you start to realize, uh, you know, first, when I started doing this, I'm like, well, I'm a comic. You know, I'm a funny guy. Uh, you know, someone will come get me. Where's my dressing room? When are they going to come get me? Where, when am I going to be delivered to fame? So I'm just a guy sitting around thinking, telling jokes and waiting for that to happen. 
Am I maintaining relationships with other comics uh, or, or people in the business to sort of like become part of a community where everybody grows up together? Like the way it works in my business, I imagine it's the same with any business is that you have peers that also they start out in different areas of the business you're in. Like, you know, when I was younger, I started out with a lot of guys that you know, and there were people that used to hang around that scene who, you know, went on to become agents or producers. Everyone starts out the same age at some point, and you get this tier of people that are peers, and they talk to each other, and they they work together, and everyone comes up at the same time. That's the way it works in in a, in an industry. That you you create alliances, you create friendships, you create business partnerships. But you know what I said to all that? Fuck you, man. I'm doing it my own way. I'm a I'm a monad. I'm a singular entity. I'm a rogue. I'll be out here doing what I do. And you fuckers, you want to pretend like you're friends with everybody? Go ahead. Go ahead and do that. I'm gonna be out here doing what I do alone. I'm a cowboy. Soon I will ride into town. And uh, and and the mayor will come out to greet me, and I will be escorted to the set of the thing that'll make me huge, and everybody like me. Not the case. Not the case. Now I am still a rogue. I'm still doing what I do. It just so happens that technology has finally enabled me to do exactly what I want to do uh, without really relying on anybody. I'm not saying I don't have friends. I'm not saying that I don't try to be pleasant. But there's some fucking thing wrong with my goddamn brain. I'm I'm not a very good ass kisser. I I can't even you know even and I'm a pretty good actor, man. But even when I try to do it, it doesn't come off right. I I like to socialize. I, I I'm very intense, which means that a lot of times if I'm in a social situation, I'm hanging out with other people, they automatically assume, well, he's arrogant, he's aloof. I'm not. I, I'm I'm probably just thinking uh, about me. I am. There's no arrogance in it. But I feel like I've gotten better. The point of, the, of all this is, is that there's so many elements to doing the work, to, to getting your particular brand of you, whatever business you're in out there, that requires a lot of uh, politicking and social etiquette and graciousness and, you know, having to hang out with people you might not like and, you know, and having to uh, compromise a little bit in order to, to get a little traction. And I, I'm just no good at that shit. You know, it's real easy to sit around and go, shit, man, why the fuck is that guy successful? Well, he probably works really hard at it, and he's probably not a dick. He may suck, but he's probably not a complete dick and apparently can work with other people. I'm just barely being able to do that now. That was, and it's a good time in my life because it was great to be up at Max FunCon because there's a lot of people, show socializing was nice. It was nice to hang out with people and not, uh, you know, wander off by myself or be a, a, a dick. I'm, I may may have been a dick for a second, but I usually catch it. I have a I have a dick filter now. Like there's a part of my brain where it's like something will come out of my mouth, and it's like holy shit! And the dick filter will like try to suck it back in. Sometimes it gets out, but then I apologize. I give myself like a fifteen to twenty second apology range to uh, to compensate for the dickishness that didn't get caught by the dick filter. So I hope I'm doing that a little more. Uh, but I you know. I, I got no real advice. You know, all I know is, I've, you know, learning from my own mistakes is that, you know, I think innately I love hanging out with other people. I love talking to other people, but there's some part of me that just doesn't want any help and has a hard time seeing myself as someone who needs help or kisses ass or sells out or compromises, uh, you know, you know, doing all those things, even in personal relationships, you know, I don't want to compromise. Okay. So I guess then we have no choice but to say no. 
or to say I'm leaving or to say you're a dick. You need to get a dick filter put into your head. Well, I got that now. I think they have them at the Apple store. I like using the stand-up mics because we're stand-up guys. Well, you're more than that. I, I'm talking to David Wayne. I'm less than that. You're less we'll than We'll talk that? about it. No, we can talk about it. We're, we're, <laughs> we're at the Standard Hotel in New York City overlooking uh, what chunk of Manhattan. I guess we're looking sort of north The meatpacking district. I think we're looking northeast at the Empire State Building. And I, I am here with David Wayne. David Wayne, of course, a originally a member of the state and then onward to be a member of Stella. Onward to uh, to direct motion pictures and television and write motion pictures, uh, and and somebody quite honestly, as as I do many times in these podcasts, I, I think I might owe an apology to. What? No, I, I I'm not I'm not ashamed of that. I, I I believe that for a long time, David, I I really found you to be a little arrogant and and somewhat <laughs> snobby, and and I and I treated you as such, and and I I condescended uh, to what you were doing with the Stella and everything. I I'm sorry for that. Well, uh, I'll I, uh, thank you for saying that, and uh, I probably had a very similar <laughs> reaction back to you. Oh, there's uh -oh. my phone. So there was a genuine tension. Well, for me, well, no, I see. It was interesting because I always thought, you know, so you came and performed. Well, first, I, you know, first I came and performed at at Luna from time to time. My turf, your turf, uh, rebar before that, right. Uh, and that was like my introduction to alternative comedy. That was the first time I seen any of these people. And then I, I associated you and Louis CK and Janine and, you know, that whole scene, Todd Berry at the time. And I, and I, you know, you guys were a few years, years older than us, but I felt very intimidated by that, that your group. Uh huh. And, and you, to me, you always represented in my head like here's this guy is a, is like a real stand-up doing true shit, right? And like and actually like getting up there and practicing the art of comedy in a way that I haven't done, right? Didn't do, right? Still haven't done, and um, you know, and I was just telling someone yesterday that of all the things I I'm I'm very proud of my career and the things I've done in my in my body of work but th there's always been this l level at times where i'm like oh i'm cheating because we're like undercutting what you're really going to do or something like that or the reality of it or the truth undercutting in what way that you you thought you were uh that whatever you do is not getting at the truth or or that is it about stand-up it's about that i would always give myself a shield like we're working in a trio i'm working with a sketch group i'm working with a concept uh-huh uh, I'm, I'm purposely being terrible. I'm purposely undercutting the bit so that I don't actually have to like get out there and deliver it. Risk failing on, on a deeper level. I guess so. No, I know what you're saying. I, I see a lot of that, but the weird thing about your, your, your approach to it, like you were feeling that about me. And yet when you guys came in, you know, you had already had this, you know, amazing success as a sketch troupe. Right. Uh, you know, and this is something I'd like to talk about a little bit is I've never seen a group of guys maintain a following like you guys do. I mean, you got most of these kids when they were 10. Right. And now they're what, 30? And, and most of them seem to still be there. And, and that was a very active campaign on your part in many ways that I'd like to talk about. But I think my resentment of you was <laughs> the, the exact same thing. Was that like, 
you were feeling the right thing. It's like right. who the hell are these guys? Right. These uh, these sketch performers, these 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 actors. Because at that time, alternative comedy didn't really exist. I mean, Janine, Louis, right. myself, we're all working in comedy clubs. We were just utilizing this new avenue of performance, right? Which you uh, ultimately have, have ended up legitimizing. Uh, you and Scott Ackerman and a few other alternative comedy. And then, well, producers. that was and on the East Coast. That was our very deliberate goal was right. to like take that you know kind of thing where it's like these comics going every week and trying out their material and like you know testing out a different kind of stand-up that you wouldn't do in the normal clubs right and we always we thought it was so amazing give it a real night not a testing out night like right. give it like a full-on fancy show and that's why we dress up in suits at first and like because like let's make it real you know and let's make it like you pay for you pay to see this you know? yeah and, and i think my first reaction to Stella was like how the fuck do these guys get so many people in a room? <laughs> I mean, how do they, how do, do this many people, are they that attached to the state that they can you manage to continue to have a career with those fans? You know, our cockiness served us for so long. And it, I wasn't the leader. So that's of gone that. now? Well, I was never, I wasn't like the driver of the cocky side of it as much. When the state happened, we went, you know, we barged into MTV. We like, when they were like, fuck you, you don't know what we're doing, you know, like, as 22 year old kids and that served us really well because the people there didn't know what they were doing either and they were the 26 year old executives and so we were just like and there were we how just, many of you 10 11 so they they couldn't defend themselves they like there's a lot of these guys here and they seem to know what they want to do and they, and yeah they were like you know some of you aren't camera ready so you know and we're like you know what we're doing it our way or it's the highway and fuck you and and, and they seem to like buy into our shtick and so then we started buying into our shtick and it went on like that. And then with Stella, you know, yeah, we certainly built on that fan base. And there is something, you know, I don't want to diminish it. There's something about we what we did as a group and then what we continue to do that, like, resonates with some the devoted following. And well, so, and know. also, like, the, the number of guys that came out of there and women one who who you right. know, maintained and, and nurtured fairly big careers in show business the numbers are pretty good it's amazing i mean the, tom lennon uh his right. partner what's his name ben grant ben grant uh michael ian black right uh, michael showalter is doing his own thing but equally as uh yeah uh, as impressive and now kevin is doing risk which is That's a great right. podcast and ken marino Ken Marino is doing. Uh, he's do, well. He works with me a lot. We we write most of our stuff together, and he's directing and he's doing a lot of great acting stuff. And he's, that, he's on the show Party Down. Well, that's a testament to a, a type of ambition that you don't see certainly in my at that stage in my generation of standups. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that the the notion of working with other people and and having the selflessness to do that and, and the joy to do that and the capacity to do that yields a, a, a more well, fruitful. Career. And it's a whole nother thing. Like we, you know, I, I know just from the legend or, you know, from listening to podcasts and so forth. I know what stand-up world is like, but I've never done it. I've never experienced it. And it's not, not pretty. My, my whole way of working has never been alone. You know, I've always worked with either partners or a large, you know, seven years with 11 people. You were on for seven years on the state? No, but we, we were together. We, we, we hooked up in college, first, first year. What college? NYU. Isn't that amazing? So we, yeah, by my sophomore year, the group had sort of gelled and then... By the time we graduated, we were on our way to, you know, we did You Wrote It, You Watch It at MTV, and then we, it was it was a very lucky ride. Well, I didn't realize that you guys were, like, I didn't even know how to have a career. Yeah, <laughs> I was so, you know, emotionally distraught and crazy, and all I wanted to do was stand up, and I never really 
knew that there was politics involved, that there was networking involved, mm -hmm. that there was, you know, presentations to make. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, where's the mic? But you guys were able to, like, how many seasons was it on, the state? Well, the, we did four batches of, like, six or, or We ended up doing 28 episodes or something. It wasn't that much. And you went on to direct the Daily Show episodes? I, well, I, um... I did some segments for the original Daily Show pre John Stewart with Craig Kilborn. Yeah, Craig Kilborn. Nothing like major, but then and then I, uh, you know, I had a, a period from the end of the state all the way through the beginning of the Stella series on Comedy Central, which was about seven or eight years, where I did a lot of stuff because, like, we were doing their Stella show at Fez, and I did make the, my movie Wet Hot American Summer, but. I wasn't making a living doing it at all during that period. And I was constantly just trying to drum up various projects and none of them quite gelling or quite working out. And that was my like really struggly dark period, which came after being on the state, you know, and having success. And you guys are all still friends for the most part. Yeah. It's like being, it's like being a family, you know, but it seems that you are really the, uh, the auteur of the group. That's not true. Well, I mean, you make <laughs> movies. Well, Oh, Oh, I, in the I, sense that that's where you went. That's where I went, yes. And that's a big thing. I mean, it does, it, it's not easy to direct a film. It takes a certain personality. No. Right. And and what, when you guys did Hot American Summer, you this is the, the interesting thing to me, was what was it like then you sit down, you have this movie. It was a cult favorite. It certainly, you know, regrouped your state fans. Right. And that was, I guess, the first real... Uh, a realization that you know you still had these people right but somehow or another you you actually did like almost a political campaign with that movie well only like you would do with any indie movie you know really because, because there's no there's no marketing a real marketing there's no commercials but no, i've never you know. seen it done like with sort of like you know hands-on grassroots like you know you come to these screenings in new york right frankly we just were I was 30 years old. I didn't have any other job. Right. Um, and this movie I knew was getting no publicity. So, and I loved it. I was really excited about it. And so, and, and everyone involved in it was in a similar position. Right. So everyone had sort of the time and the enthusiasm and the energy to like, let's do a big, we did a lot of like parties and events and like shows and like, it's the wet hot premiere show. And like, you know, but didn't that happen also like after long after the release that wasn't it resurrected again? Yeah, well, there was that and that was largely out of my doing. There was the, the midnight screenings. There still are. It's, it's become a cult movie. It's become like this like iconic cult movie uh, having nothing to do anymore with me. And I'm very, very p proud of that. But. Do you still uh, it, are there returns from it? You know, it's never it's still not made an actual profit. Um, it was made for uh, one point eight million and uh, I th theoretically, it's still only grossed less. But uh, so, yeah. But it still keeps you guys and your fans aware and, you know, unified somehow. The, yeah. People come up to me and, and give me, you know, props for it. all. The time, oh, yeah. Which I love. I mean, yeah, that the state and Wet Hot American Summer and Stella, th there's something about it that it's probably that same thing, like the cheating thing that people some people are like really relate to it because you're like, yeah, it's not, it's different, you know, or, I don't know. Right. But how is that the cheating thing? You feel, you still feel like you've gotten away with something? No, I mean, I don't, I don't, I want to be clear. Like I'm not being falsely modest. Like I feel like I've worked my ass off and I feel like I have talent and I know what I'm doing and I've worked really, really hard on all the things that have, you know, gotten fans that I've done. Right. Um, but it is like, you know, it, it's that thing of like, 
well, it doesn't matter if they really care about the characters because we're it's supposed to be stupid, you know. It, <laughs> what, did you make it with it the, the idea of it becoming a cult movie? No, we we were, t- you know, blissfully young and not really thinking about the where it would go or how it, we just thought it would be a movie and it would come out. But what happened is it did way worse in the theatrical run than we had hoped or even thought. But you know, it's lasted 10 times longer than we ever imagined. Right. And it seems to have a life of, a, of its own. Oh, yeah. And the Stella thing, I think you guys were really the first ones that I re- remember. And, and of course, I resented that, too, that were using multimedia that were, you know, like you, right. none of you were really stand ups and you were doing this sort of uh, rat pack thing with the suits and, and, you know, just having a good time. And then you'd show films. Right. So it became sort of this multimedia event. And that enabled you to sort of vertically market yourselves and the show. Like, was there always the intention? Never a plan. Honestly, we, we were like one of about a year into doing the show at Fez. Showalter was like, let's do a, a video tonight. You know, and that day we went and, sh- you know, shot a video and we kept our suits on just because it was pretending it was the the day before the show uh and the video you know everyone loved it a little three minute thing this is you know way before youtube or anything um and then little by little we're like okay we can make more of these videos and we start passing out tapes and then putting them on the internet as the internet was growing and uh i i would like to say we had a whole plan but we like you were visionaries i mean like the ucb from my view came into town with a plan Right. Like they stormed into New York and said, we're going to systematically take over comedy, which they have since done. Yeah. We, A, didn't do that. And B, didn't pl- whatever we did do, we didn't plan it, really. And the, the, t- the Stella show on Comedy Central, why did that not stick? Well, because nobody watched it. <laughs> oh, that still counts for something? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I wish they had, you know, it was, it was a classic example of the, a lot of things that I've been involved in where, you know, the, the executives supposedly loved it, and the audience that was there loved it, but the audience was too small. I'm finding that when you executives know. say they love something, it's a kiss of death. Yeah. Well, it's always this thing like, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> or I love you. And it's like, well, you're in charge of the network, so oh, okay. if you love it, then... <laughs> Make it happen. What's the problem? Like, what happened to that? <laughs> you know, everyone fantasizes... In movies, too, you fantasize about the days when, you know, Jack Warner said, I like this, so we're going to do it. That's yeah. the end of it. And, and I own you guys for the rest of time. Yeah. You would have be open to that, right? Uh, no, I'm sure. <laughs> but I trusted the guy. I wish we had done more of the Stella series because I feel like by the end of 10 episodes, you know, that's a season on cable. It's, it's not 26. And so after 10 episodes, I feel like we finally were getting a glimpse of how to do it really great. And then we never had a chance to try. You know? Yeah. And now in, in terms of the guys, you, you know, I know you all have different careers, but there must have been some... Like, I've watched Michael and Michael, and I've seen you guys together. I mean, there must have been bickering and problems. Oh, yeah. Hugely. I mean, Between which personalities? Well, Michael and Michael and I are very, very different, all three of us. Yeah. And a lot of the the conflict on stage or on screen is very similar to it, what it is in, in real life. And certainly their show, Michael and Michael, is like a verbatim, from my view, is a verbatim you know, portrait of their real cells oh they, really they don't even really exaggerate it to, right from from what i can tell um but you know i mean it's just like anything every, every three different three different people even though we all kind of grew up together and you know we've been working together since we we're 18 we still have three different points of view on certain things and you know there's just little little meaningless things that piss each other off and then you work together so closely with just the three of us for so intensely for so long and you know doing our tv show was incredibly grueling and we you know we, we did a lot of stuff we toured and 
um, we had a great time at times, but you know, there's, of course, it's constant like, you know. Yeah, Michael Ian Black's the only one that like I could not separate his stage persona from him, and I just always <laughs> felt like, is he really a dick? And I, you know, I, I don't, and he's the only one that has kids, huh? No, I have a kid now. You do? Yeah, I have a two year, two and a half year old. Uh, Congratulations! Boy. Thank you. Has that changed your life? Of course, in every way. Has it made you a, a more uh, humble uh, person, filled with humility and uh, all the cliches? Uh huh. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, well, I feel more grounded and more directed. And Are you married? More productive. Yeah, I'm married. Really? Yeah. When did that happen? Uh, Look at everybody year, growing up. A year after the baby was born. Uh huh. Um, yeah, no, I met a, a nice girl, married her. It's yeah, I've, I felt I the last few years I like totally turned into an adult in every way. Like I, I got married, I had a kid, I like, uh, you know, I had my first my parent, my mother passed away. Like you know, I made the, my first like real you know big budget movie and. You know, yeah, it's just like everybody growing up. They yeah, make their first do. real big budget movie. and Everyone needs to do that. <laughs> if you really want to, you have to direct a big budget movie to really understand what it is to be a human being. That's, that's my recommendation for all the people down in Haiti. If they want to get some perspective. On, yeah, on stop feeling sorry on. for yourself. Get out and direct yeah, a big get budget picture. out there. You know, it's like, I don't feel sorry for them. Get out there. Go to Universal. You know, make your pitch. <laughs> or take an open directing assignment and see what you can do. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your mom. And that, Thank you. I, I, uh, you know, I, I haven't had to experience that yet. And I have to imagine that on some deep emotional level, that that happening has got to really make you realize that your own your own mortality. In that of course. Yeah. I mean, it dropped, although I it was sort of the last piece in this like drop kicking into adulthood that I went through. Mm -hmm. And so by the time that happened, thank God, I, I would say. I was really prepared because sort of everything had turned over in my life. And so then by then I was like, okay, I was more prepared for it basically. Uh -huh. And then, uh, but I feel like I've now emerged. I, I turned 40, I'm 40 years old. Now I'm like, okay, I'm for sure not a kid anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think there's part of, of those two events, essentially the, the death of a parent and certainly a child would uh, you know i i wish i could uh not you know make one of my parents die but i i wish that uh that that y y i don't have either of those things and i still feel like part of me is like not quite getting the adult thing well what's great about it is at least one of them will happen and yes. probably hopefully uh, all of those things will happen and then but and it, it doesn't matter what age you are it will it, you'll it'll happen <laughs> yeah I, I you can't be immature yeah, I should tell my father that. Maybe <laughs> if I could call him up and tell him that you can grow up, Dad. Maybe that would be helpful. So let's talk about the movie career sure. because now, did you do these these wainy day uh, segments before you got married? Because wasn't that essentially so you could kiss actresses? Or yes. am I wrong? No, I, I well, I'm, my, I've been with my now wife for five years. She an actress? She is an actress. She's actually in the uh, Wainy Days uh, show. Which one she's, is she? She's, her name is Zandy, and she's a blonde, and she sits with me in the uh, sweat shop. Okay. Um, and, uh, yes. No, well, yeah. Who did you kiss? <laughs> Who did I kiss? Yeah. On the show? Yeah. Everybody. I mean, all these beautiful uh, actresses. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, name a few. Uh, Elizabeth Banks. You kissed her? I did. I did. Who was the best kisser out of all of well, them? Well, you know, I really, because I actually am married and... It, it's, it doesn't have the same thrill as like actually don't, don't bullshit me it doesn't it sucks it, I wish I could I can't even like really get into like it technique wise Banks is a great kisser okay good she's good. an old friend too. so you kissed her before no 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 oh 
Okay. Because I would no. Because no. she's been married since since for like fifteen years. She's been oh, married really? since she married the guy she met in college. Oh no, kidding. Yeah. I got to mark that off the list. Well, she's got this persona of being you know very sultry and sexy and flirty, which she is. But and and but she's married and, and faithful. I just saw Gretchen Mall over at the Chelsea Market. She's gorgeous. Did you kiss her? No, but I worked with her. Yeah. On the my movie The Ten. Yeah. And I've always thought, I mean, she's just the best. All right. So, okay. So Wet Hot American Summer, then, <laughs> and then you did, went through a bunch of stuff. And then all of a sudden, you know, you wrote, the, the 10 was the first one you wrote and directed like, since Wet Hot American Summer. That's right. Mm -hmm. So was that 10 years between those two things? Six. Now, that was something you wrote. But there was like, more, almost more interesting is all the false starts. Like there was like 15 things that I almost kind of did or almost got to the point of making. And I had this one incredible experience where... They, I was up for this movie and I spent like two months prepping and everything and then finally I got to I flew myself to LA and I walked across the lot at Paramount to Pitchman thing and I had a huge binder with all of my materials that I had prepared for 10 no this is for uh, a movie like to direct that I love the script you know, oh, okay. that they were doing and as I'm walking up to the gate I get the call from my agent like oh the meeting's canceled they already hired someone else oh. go home to New York and uh, that was my moment. That was one of my big moments in my life where I was like, okay, I guess if I don't quit now, then I never will because this is what I do. Well, I think maybe we should walk this through because I don't, uh, I've not talked to people that have uh, directed pictures. <laughs> Seriously. Sure. That, first of all, it, it's my understanding that um, you have to get people aligned with this. So you're a fairly sociable guy. You got, you know, you got Liev. What's his last name? Schreiber. Schreiber. You've got some other, you know, at least, you know, people who have done movies. Right. And you knew them socially or? So, uh, some. Well, like Leah, a lot of people, I, you know, people like Paul Rudd and other people I've associated with, I met them very sort of briefly at Stella, at our show at Fez. And I don't know, I mean, you know, like he, he was there because another actor that he you know zach orth was friends with because he had worked with something i met like, zach zach's sort of a new york fixture yeah yeah great guy and he's been in a lot of our all of yeah. our stuff or a lot of our stuff but anyway my point is a lot of these people i just knew very parenthetically but you knew enough to say you know i did this take a look at it yes although for example leah schreiber you know a lot like it was more just we just sent it through the normal channels we just sent it to their agent but then we sort of add this thing like, oh, he knows who I am, you know. Right. And a lot of those people like um, Famke Jansen was in the 10. I mean, honestly, she would have to like really rack her brain to remember having met me once and saying hello. Right. At some event somewhere. So, but that's why, one of the reasons, another reason I love the Waney days is it's been a chance to actually like meet and work for a day with this actor or this person, this crew person. And then, then when you get to making the feature, you've actually have something to go back to and say oh i know her you know right sure I, I think that a lot of people who listen to my podcast are, are creative people and they're artists and they're people that have aspirations that i don't think some people really realize the process of, mm -hmm. of actually getting something from the script to even in the hands of somebody that you can then say well so and so is interested in this and she signed on does this make you more interested can i direct my own right. movie now were were there lines drawn you know once you got people attached where you said that the only way i'm going to do this is if i direct it yeah well i mean with with the first one with wet hot american summer i well with every movie i've put together on my own i've said this is for me to direct and that's the point you know like were, were there studios involved in all of them or none of you, them where'd you get the money the first one was we had a producer, 
you know, small producer, you know, in New York named Howard Bernstein. And he over, you know, three years kind of cobbled together the tiny budget just from one, you know, one investor at a time. And it was really painful because there were so many moments where somebody came in and said, okay, I'm paying for this. We're going with this company. Right. And they look you in the eye and then the next day they literally don't return your call again. And that's you know, it. That's it. it I'm found all it. the time. Yeah, and really, no. Call. I mean, that happens when they cancel shows. Yeah, you, you, all of a sudden, someone goes, "Oh, you didn't hear? No one told you? Oh, you, it's not right. happening." Well, people disappear. Yeah, people are just like it's like, and I. It was a good early lesson to not believe anything ever. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and it's, you know, I, I'm right now in in prep for what I think is my next movie that I think is going to shoot in the fall. But, you know, I don't even. It's sort of a bummer because you can't ever really get excited about it because you it's it will fall apart or it won't but if it doesn't then you're now shooting and you're too busy to think about it well that's the interesting thing about show business is that you have this stuff that is your life work you've invested a lot of time and at some point you've got to realize that the odds of this happening are small right and that rejection is almost inevitable right uh or compromise and that you have to temper that you know so you here you are pursuing this thing that you want to do with your life and you can never get excited about it until it's done well what's weird about it is like you know i'm by my own measure, have reached certain milestones that I'm really happy about. And yeah. I'm very, you know, I'm perceived as successful by many, and I and I'm happy about that too. But like, my point is, there's never like the celebration of it. Like, right. Like when 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 the state got a deal to do something, we went out and you know celebrated for a week. We were so excited. You know, now it's like you grow up and you're like, well, maybe who knows? You know, and then yeah. it's a it's a it's an interesting dynamic so the t- 10 didn't do great no although technically it actually grossed more in theaters than uh, wet hot american summer right and then you went on to do the baxter the 10 is great though yeah it's my, the 10 commandments right it's, These- it's uh i'm very proud of it i hope uh, your listeners might check it out the baxter i i was just an actor for a couple of days on oh you uh, that yeah, was no. uh mike showalter wrote and directed that movie so now the role models sing <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I just don't, uh, you know, I don't, I, I'm just curious to see how one, you know, sustains right. this, uh, this, this, because now you got a chance, even though the two movies that you did do did not succeed at the box office in right. numbers, you were given the opportunity to direct a big budget movie, which was Role Models. And, and there's no way to say it any other way, which is that it's because of Paul Rudd. You know, Paul was in both my first two tiny independent money losing movies, and then he was involved with this much bigger budget studio comedy and the director fell out like kind of last minute oh and uh they were scrambling and it was a sort of a perfect opportunity and paul recommended me and uh the producer of the movie took a meeting and thought okay let's give it a shot and so i came in six weeks before shooting and rewrote the script with paul and ken marino from scratch now, what's going on in your head when they're like, okay, you can do it? Well, frankly, I was very conflicted about taking the job. Because Why? Because you're afraid that you, you, this isn't my project, and if I fail at this job of director, then yeah. I'm fucked. Well, yeah, and I, I, and I probably would have been. I mean, frankly, it was just really, I, was, I went on this rafting trip right then with my That's friend. That's always what you should do. Well, I wish I could do that more <laughs> often, but it was like a perfect you know, three days of thinking about it, and... I was really going over the pros and cons because I did not think the script was strong and I didn't think, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to make this terrible, terrible movie and then I'll never get another chance. You know, movie jail. It happens all the time. Yeah. Is um, that what it's called? Movie jail? That's what they call it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, maybe that's just what it is and then I'll just try it and then I'll come back and I'll do my things that I do in New York and it's all good. 
but um and then i then i somehow you know i decided okay it's i i can use the money i just let me just i'll try it you know because my, my my wife was already pregnant at the time right and uh so i took a whack and we did it and i can honestly say it was a combination of many things but one big big element was dumb luck that it kind of came together and it connected did okay right it did really well i mean for, it did much better than anyone expected uh-huh. and it did and it was better than most people thought it would be yeah they i know people who love the movie yeah it's like i like it a lot it, it it what what it it's ace in the hole is that it looks terrible and then you see it and you're like oh it's actually there's like little strains of edge to it and stuff and you know well, what would you call um well i mean all those movies and trailers look stupid yeah most well, comedies right but but what was it now if you're going to say for yourself as as an auteur <laughs> that you you know that your sense of comedy or what you're going to bring to a film you know what do you what are you looking to do what what is would you call your signature elements of of what you think are good like in the, in the moments that you scripted or in the moments in that movie that you just described that you know it has this other thing that people wouldn't suspect what is it that well I mean, you know, I've always sort of um, put in um, my mind goes sort of meta when I look at a piece of material. Mm-hmm. I'm always looking to in either subtly or not comment on it itself, I guess, is one one element. that I bring. So, yo, so that's that thing that you said was maybe a, yeah. a, a not a, a good thing. Well, it's about what depends on your perception. But like what was fun for me with the role models thing was you couldn't really do that in a big studio comedy. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, how do you. To comment on the material how do you itself, do subtle comments on the material. You know, how do you like slightly? You put, put in these under the in the subtext. You so that you, you sort of that that part of the the David Wayne uh, oeuvre <laughs> would be that you, you know you 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 condescend to the the material at hand for comedic purposes. That also protects you from. Uh, from that thing you were talking about before, the nature, the notion of failure. That but, even if the movie sucked, <laughs> you could come out saying, you know, but we, you know, the we movie was aware knew. of itself. Yeah, right? <laughs> but you know, I've got, I've actually grown tired of even that notion. And I, and and the goal, I think, is to like sort of have an, a self awareness, but then also deliver the goods. That that's my hope. That's the that's what I try to do. like actually make you care about it. Actually find truth in the story. Find something that matters to you. You know, and and. And That's to, a grown-up perspective. Well, but to a greater or lesser degree, I have tried that in the other two movies I made. Right. Well. But, but uh, you know, those the first two movies were utterly, had absurdist sure. tendencies. But so now you want to go a little deeper. And certainly taking on the Ten Commandments is no small task. But we, we did it with such abandon. You know, we did, it, was, it was a big fuck you. you know, uh, to the Ten Commandments. You know. In <laughs> right. fact, the first... Uh, the first draft of the script ended with this music. It still had a musical number, but it used to end with, you know, a song where the lyrics essentially said, um, they literally said, you know, we gave you 10 stories. And so, you know, if you didn't like it, fuck you. <laughs> right. Um, but I think that's an interesting thing because I find that and I've had this conversation with people before about the nature of, of, of this more kind of nerdy, higher end, uh, alternative comedic mm-hmm. sensibility that there, there is a, an avoidance element, a detachment right. from, from, from dealing with what you're saying are, are, you know, elemental human truths in, in, in a fairly raw or honest way. And I've always thought it was defensiveness because they're protecting the fact that they might not have those experiences. And also there's this other element that, that I think is very interesting that you brought up is that when you do slightly condescend or get meta, you're, you kind of protect yourself. Yes, you're building a wall. 
Right. Sure. And that's what you don't do. That's see, that's what I and I honestly think of when I think of what I don't do. I honest that the name Mark Maron comes to mind all the time because right. I'm like, here's a guy who I have, I have very specific, very particular memories of watching at Luna Lounge, you know, right. and saying like, this guy is just like doing like he has an art of communicating that has nothing to do with what I do. You know? Right. But that, but it seems to me that the the point is is that as you get older, if there's any you know through line to what we're talking about, is that you know you're maturing, you've been you know you're starting to realize that life is what it is, and that your attempt now is to to integrate that into what you're doing. Kind of, but like yes, in Stella, even for example, on a great night at, at, of our show, which is really really absurd, like detached to the nth degree, we'll still there's, I feel like I have now developed a. Uh, vessel for what i do where truth can actually go down that pike in a really cool way now, i know exactly what you're saying <laughs> that that in those moments where you're just three guys that have known each other for 20 years on stage yeah. that something happens on a, on a human level between you that i think i would imagine most of the time is spontaneous initially well and stella at its best over all the years we've done it was like a jazz band I yeah no thought. i think that's right I, I and i think that that is one of the reasons why your fans adore you still is that you, you've you've struck a balance because i'm no fan of absurdism in a general sense even from even of the people that that created it, like you right. know, Don, you know, like uh, the Dada movement or Ionesco right. plays, yeah, it was never my bag because I just can't, I can't fucking pay attention if something isn't at risk, and and I think that what happens when things get real on stage is that the risk is just that you're being human and you you take care of each other despite the fact that you have differences. And I feel like the the all the best stuff that I feel like I've ever done from the state till now that it has truth. And I'm always searching for what's real to me, but it's it's a different definition than what you might do on stage as a stand-up because I'm I'm not talking necessarily about my real life like what I did today. Yeah. But I'm I'm constantly and I'm becoming more of like a robot, like a machinist. I don't know what the word is about. I look and I'm writing and I'm like, nope, that that line's not true. That sentence's not true. That action's not true. That shot's not true. And I'm always trying to be like, no, I want to believe that. I need to believe that, even if the overall comedic concept might be utterly absurd or silly you know well i think i, I think that i've got a new respect for you now <laughs> just from having this conversation and that your your craft is is honoring a comedic vision that that you've had for a long time that you like doing absurd broad you know comedy right yeah you know, if it's smart and well, now and i'm particularly proud the thing i'm probably most proudest of anything i've done is just the fact that there's been a continuum that that feels like a a singular body of work right. to me you know now would you ever think you know i talked to bob odenkirk not long ago uh, would you ever think to do something, you know, insanely personal uh, and something that, you know, has a, a different feel than, than what you're establishing? Yes, I would love to. I, 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 I don't know when or what. And it might be sooner. I don't know. I, I, I know that I I know I don't want to just do the same thing all the time. Sure. You know, and I don't necessarily always want to do comedy and I don't I just but I'm not. I also feel like pretty much every thing I've done that I've felt good about has kind of organically happened yeah. in one way or another. And then I see it happening and then I push it. That's everything. Like Stella, all of it has always been like, oh, let's take that thing that's already kind of going and now let's push it further. So right. I feel like that's what will maybe happen at some point. Now, do you, now you come from... By the way, you say this... We've known each other 15 years. We never had a conversation. Well, I find that with a lot of people I interview. Which is great. It's, it's the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, you know, I well, I'm at a point in my life where... You know, I, I enjoy, I've always enjoyed talking to people, but for some reason, 
you know, when you're in show business mm -hmm. and, and if you don't have a, a, a click or a gang, you know, you, you sort of, there's a, a type of, of terminal uh, politeness and, and confidence yeah. that is assumed just in order to survive. And also there's a competitiveness, whether anyone's willing to admit it or not. And also I don't, I don't, I don't maintain a lot of friendships. But there's a re but as people get older, you need, you don't, you need to find reasons to talk to people, which is, you know, they, they had a dinner for all the directors in New York, all the feature directors. And it was amazing how many there are and how much we all have to say to each other and how there never is any reason I never have a reason to talk to a director. And, and also, yeah, but also I, f I think that I'm just starting to realize this now in, in doing something that I, I really love because I, I mean, this podcast, you know, despite the, the form is new and, and what have you, it really, it's good for me. It's good for what I like to do. Yeah. It gives me complete freedom and it engages me is that when people are doing things, you're fucking busy. I mean, you know, to, to find, even with you today, you know, to find the time, you would think like, you know, I'm just going to have lunch with somebody. And then literally it becomes like, I can't fucking have lunch with you. Yeah. And, you know, you want to, but it's like you got a million little things to do. And, and a lot of people, like I just had this conversation with my producer today about that with Brendan that, you know, people who are successful and people who are getting things done are fucking busy. Time management is my number one like thing on my head. All it's, the time. it's impossible. Yeah. I mean, to compartmentalize and to know when a day, like, I can't figure out when to stop working. And, and you know, you wouldn't think I'm doing a lot, but it, it is a lot. I've, I've started this thing. This my, tonight will be my second try of, of turning off on, on the Sabbath, on Saturdays. The Jew thing? Yeah. Have you just using the Jew thing for an excuse or? Kind of. Yeah. Just saying like, you know. Let's honor God's I'm will. I'm going to 24 if, hours. And even I'm if gonna, I don't believe in God or how I feel about yeah, God. Let's not, just, I'm not going to worry. Get, get all worried about that. Yeah, let's follow the, the basic detail. rules. Maybe there was a human reason I'm for I'm going to say there's got to be some. Yeah, there's, it doesn't. It's, it's common sense to say, hey, let's take a day a week and shift gears and put your email away. And So you shut the light off and pre-tear your toilet paper and turn no, your I phone off? No, I didn't do off. that. But I did turn the, for me, putting the phone away and, and the, uh, the iPhone and the laptop was like tearing off my limbs and it was great you know it was like i couldn't believe how different i felt for 24 hours and it enables you to focus in on your family on your own yeah, thoughts exactly go for a walk without my phone in my hand like it's amazing it isn't thing. it it's almost like, scary like i'm gonna try you know and it's sort of pathetic how different it is but it's it's worth doing because like you know i would say to anyone who's listening you know maybe you're listening on your headphones on your iphone now put it down and go for a walk around the block without it in your hand. Yeah, but wait till you finish the episode. After, yeah, when yeah. it's over. <laughs> now, you, I didn't really realize yeah, that, uh, you know, I knew your, your father was involved with, uh, with uh, Air America briefly. Yeah. But I, I didn't really realize that you came from, not, not necessarily a show business family, but your father was in the radio business. Yeah, and he, I, I would say he was a showman of sorts, certainly, in the radio world. You know? now, and you grew up in Ohio? Cleveland, Ohio. Cle have you been there lately? Yeah, I go all the time. You, oh, is he still there? Uh, he, my father spends uh, half the year there and my, I have three sisters who live there. And your father was in AM top 40 radio. He was in everything. Yeah. AM FM. He, he was, he came up all the way. He, he grew up in Brooklyn and then worked in every kind of job and every kind of radio station around the country, uh, until eventually being an owner of a radio station. As an on-air personality as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. So you, you grew up around the mics. I did. Although by the time I was born, he was done with being on air. Oh, he already uh, he a master radio empire. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, because he's eighty-two now. Um, but he, uh, he's, a, and in fact, you know what I've been doing is StoryCorps. I've been interviewing him in the last year or two, and getting his life story, just like this. Uh huh. And it's incredible. Oh yeah, it's things you didn't amazing, know, right? A million things I didn't know because we never had that formal. 
you know, I've talked to him all the time. I've asked him questions, but never really had the formal like, okay, we're going to sit down and I'm going to really ask you about your life and like get the stories and like, you know, I'm going to be an interviewer. And it's been incredible. I recommend it for anyone who has parents. To sit and interview their parents. Interview your parents or whoever, anyone in your life that you're, that you care about. Like, it's an amazing thing. You ask how, how did you really feel, you know, when you met my mom? How did you, what was it like before that? You know, what, and now we all have the technology to do it so easily yeah. you know, just for your own personal. It's, inf- it's interesting that, you know, you say we've never talked. And then once you put a mic in, in front of somebody, even if they're your parents, that, you know, I did my mother, that there's some other shift that they'll make. Sure. You know, they'll, first they'll be like, well, your father obviously is, you know, knows about the yeah. mic and, and how to behave on mic, but they're sort of like, do I just talk into the, and then you, it's surprising how quickly they're, they're professional broadcasters. And also I think it's so interesting how like I listen to your Robin Williams thing, you know, and like I listen to my own self talk. I feel like I'm on NPR or something like, because you like, depending on the context, you're not really moved to make a lot of jokes or like, you know, I don't know. Like, yeah, well, you're actually, you know, you're forced to sort of like, you know, feel because you're in front of a mic that right. my, my, my story is, is valid. And for most comedians or most, most people like probably both of us, when you get interviewed, it's on like some radio station for two minutes and all they want you to do is like compete with them. Jam. Who can yeah. be louder. And yeah. Like, yeah. Well, David Wayne, I appreciate you taking the time and continued success. Mazel blast. Let's check in again another time. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've got a nice chunk of time here, and I know you got, you're got you busy, and I, and I really uh, have to get a haircut. All right. Very good. Bye. You know, in... in relation to my conversation with david wayne i look i i'm about the same age as he is uh, i remember the state on television i i remember uh, when they were starting out as a comedy group because we're all in the same community and you know in in in, in light of the fact that i seem to be doing some fairly in-depth work here on the podcast i i remembered a story uh you know from when i you know probably 20 years ago uh about the state it, it seemed like a crazy story to me and about how they worked as a comedy group, their work ethic, uh, and, and some some darker elements. And you know, through you know, because I've been in this business a long time, you know, I'm about one degree of separation from just about anybody. But this was a difficult uh, guest to have. But I just I I, I saw it. Uh, uh, we're going to use the name uh, uh, Troy, I think, right? Right. Troy is not in the business anymore uh, for very specific reasons. We're going to talk about it, and it was because of his experience. With, uh, with a group of comedy performers that became the state, and, you know, including David Wayne, Michael Showalter, Michael Ian Black, Tom Lennon. You know, I know that many fans of the state listen to this. So, so Troy, now l- let me understand. Well, you're not, you're not in show business anymore. No, not, not at all. Not at all. And you were at NYU in the late 80s, mm-hmm. uh, which is where the, the state you know, you know, started. That's where it was organized. Right. They were they were the uh, the new group. Characters, uh, sketches, whatnot. Yeah and, yeah, yeah. and one of the first things that um, David Wayne and Michael Showalter sort of like inspired in me actually was this isn't necessarily just a hobby for right. everybody. This isn't just an experience for everybody. There's actually be, money to be made. But this can be a job. This, this can be a profession. They were suggesting to myself and others that we, we may very well be uh, uh, professionals right. with this, and and like at that age, of course, you're impressionable, yeah. and you're excitable, and, uh-huh. and and I and I began actually, I actually did consider for like to, uh, a year and a half at NYU while I was affiliated with them. I was actually kind of thinking, yeah, I'm going to go into comedy. Yeah, and you know what happened there? I, I... Well, 
I guess it was about six months ago, I'm listening to NPR. Yeah. And uh, David Wayne and Michael Showalter were um, being interviewed. Yeah. And um, I'm listening and I'm, I'm hearing things about what they're doing presently and uh, kind of how they started. I, I can't remember who the host was or who the interviewer was on NPR at that time, but I, I suddenly began to perspire. Uh-huh. My my heart started racing. Yeah, I I I, I felt like I felt dizzy, and I had to pull my car over to the side of the road. Wow! And I just started crying. Huh. I just started uncontrollably sobbing. And I had, I mean, I, listen, I'm married. I have kids. Uh, I've got a good life. I yeah. mean, like everybody, there's been a, a cut, but. You know, I, this didn't go away. And for a few weeks, I kind of wrestled with it. And finally, my wife convinced me to talk to a regression therapist. And um, and, and in a sense, my experience with the state was very uh, symptomatic of post-traumatic stress disorder. What, I mean, what are you talking about? We're talking about a, a comedy group. There were some things that were going on that uh, would rival any fraternity hazing, any sort of lacrosse really? team. Really? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It kind of began with these marathon improv sessions that would begin Friday. They'd call it happy hour. Right. And it would end Sunday night. Um, what? No, three days? Three. The improv would start. You'd get a first line or a last line. Right. Um, you know, kind of a scenario. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Typical improv exercise sure. games. And David would say he had this whistle. Yeah. But it wasn't like a referee's whistle. It, yeah. It kind of made like a... Like a dragon sound. Man, it made a creepy sound. And 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 he said, when you hear this whistle, um, you are not to break character until you hear the second whistle. And, and I mean, we're talking Saturday. At, we've been up 24 hours. It's Saturday at 3 o'clock, and I'm still playing like this doctor role. I've yeah. done every possible operation you can imagine. Uh-huh. I've treated every type of patient and or, uh, symptom. And, and just, and it would just... It was exhausting, and and you were sleep deprived, and and it, so what, was this just was the agenda, you know, just to be funny? I mean, I don't understand. I mean, did they go on for more than like what, two days, or I mean, what they? I think David and the two Michaels recognized that there was going to be this onslaught of young, excited, uh, ambitious performers, uh-huh. and they wanted the cream of the crop. They wanted the best. They wanted the perfect specimen. They wanted. But it also it seems to me like that you know that you know that sleep deprivation. I mean, you know, didn't it, didn't it get weird? I mean, we. I mean, Mark, if you, I, I know this isn't TV, but if you see this, yeah, what is that? A tra- tragedy comedy mask? Tragedy comedy mask, and what this is, is this is a, it's a scar. It's actually it was branded into the inside of everybody's knee. Are you serious? Yeah, if you if you. If you showed any type of sort of skill, I guess is the word, um, they and brand you. And and the two Michaels had this side room in their loft space where we would do these like extra session work. Yeah. Um, where where you would be stripped naked, uh-huh. you would be lathered in sort of a Vaseline type thing. Um, you were then forced to roll around in sawdust, and it's like. At the time, you're young and you think, "Yeah, this is like Animal House stuff. This is this is this is totally normal." But then to 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 take photographs of you. So let me understand this because you know, it's it's sort of you know, it's shocking to me in the sense that 
you know, between sleep deprivation, you know, taking young minds. I mean, it sounds to me, if I'm not mistaken, that you know, I've done a little reading with cults that that you know, when you deprive someone of sleep, that they become very malleable. So I'm, I, you know, I don't know where your memory cuts off uh, in in these improv sessions, but did people break down? Did they did they you know you know become childish or start crying or because it sounds like a cult to me. That, that's all I'm saying. It sounds I, like a cult to me. It, you know, it, yeah, I mean. What I do recall, and 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 bear with me, because a lot of this stuff I'd kind of just forgotten about and 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 put away. But well, it's hard to forget a, a fucking brand on your uh, your knee. It is, but f- from some of the work that I've been doing, and some of the stuff that's come up, there there were individuals that were humiliated so badly in terms of their inability to really be in the moment, so to speak, or to really kind of if David saw a funny improv or something that uh, could have been capitalized right. on during the course of an improv right um he'd get in people's faces not even like a drill sergeant like like a dictator i mean like like a, a Idi Amin or or a hitler it's just like this this power that 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 he had to just break people down he enforced all of us at some point to hold our character to not break character after the first retreat yeah until two weeks after and you're talking spring break so we went to the three-day retreat right at least 70% of us left in character and had to stay in character when we went home to see our families. And you can imagine this freaked some families out. He, he had, at the time, there was more than just one woman in the group. Yeah. And he um, he wanted, I don't know if he instructed them or they chose their characters, but it's almost as if he maniacally knew that they were going to choose something that would be impossible to hold in character, like crack-addicted prostitute. Uh-huh. This young, this freshman girl, yeah. from Staten Island. Uh-huh. I mean, she she went home for spring break looking the part of crack-addicted prostitute. Uh-huh. She was so deep into the crack-addicted whore character that she had sex with her brother. Oh, my God. There's this one guy, Roger, Roger E. Yeah. He, was a, he was a junior. He was actually ROTC. And um, I remember it because he and I wanted to do a Full Metal Jacket sketch and yeah, David yeah. like totally shot it down. But yeah. in any case, Roger drew um, mentally impaired and, yeah. and in- interpreted the character as, as a mentally retarded guy. Yeah. And so he had to go home on spring break as like, you know, a mentally retarded person. And the parents thought that he was on drugs. They thought that he had suffered some sort of a weird kind of aneurysm right. or something. And this kid never came out of it. He never broke character. He was so overly, intensely desperate to please David and the two Michaels that he, to this day, is being treated. He's like classified as moderately retarded. And is he in a hospital? No, he works in a sheltered uh, um, residence somewhere. I, I think it's I think it's in Nebraska uh-huh, or something. Uh-huh. With a group home. Now, I, now, I'm still in touch with them. Well, I mean, so what? So was now you're see like what I'm seeing as I said before is is a cult dynamic. So you know that that people that uh, were able to pull this stuff off that didn't get damaged by these tests. Mm-hmm. Is what they seem like to me. That 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 came out of character. That did the that what was necessary. Survived the sleep, sleep deprivation improv. Uh, were able to go home and you know and and keep the character and come back and go. I did it. That they were the ones that we see in in the final cast of the state. And and you were in that cut. Why I left and what we were talking about was essentially where I had to draw the line, and where I 
I freed myself. I escaped and then suppressed it for many years. From but, from what from what 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 was it? Murder. What? It was murder. It was assassinations. It was executions. It was eliminations. It was they were hits. There was a list. Uh, Carrie Kenny uh, was being groomed to woo people like David Cross. Um, Dave Chappelle, uh-huh. uh, she even had a lesbian thing with uh, Sarah Silverman. She huh. was trying to get some stuff going on there. And that the state would either bring these people in and have them convert to being sort of like pro-state. And if people weren't willing to play along, there was talk and may still be today. There may be people's lives in danger. We were given lists. Okay. All right. So so what you're saying is that, uh, that right now, as we speak, people that watch the state you know, in their early teens... Some may be activated to do this this killing that that you know that there are comedians' lives at risk now, and and that they can be like snapped on at any point. This is my fear. This is this is what I think is going to happen. This is the the fact that Will Ferrell is alive today mm-hmm. and experiencing the success he's having um, is part and parcel of this. Why did everybody stop watching Jim Carrey? Mm-hmm. I mean, Jim Carrey did not stop being funny. Jim Carrey didn't stop. It's arguable, making, but I understand what you're saying. Well, I mean, what's also true is that people stopped viewing him. Um, one of their test subjects. Um, Dave Chappelle also is not really, you know, he had that thing. Why with, did um, Dave freak out? Right. I mean, really? Okay. What, same offices, just down, the state had offices. Artie Lang tried to uh, kill himself. The state has an agenda. Mm. And it's not funny, ha ha. So there, there's a lot more going on than we could ever imagine. There's a lot more going on. There's a lot more that 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 will go on. Uh, there's a lot that has gone on, currently is going on. That's exactly what I'm saying. And believe me, I I know that coming out in this form and fashion is not going to be met with uh, immediate uh, acceptance. But I mean, look around at what's happening. Okay. Yeah. Um, the election of President Obama, based on 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 media hype and and and, and the, the youth energy. and the youth vote, the youth vote. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, that's that's always something that David Wayne wanted to put in place. An energetic, ultra liberal. You know, say what you will about your politics, but David got his way here. Wait, so you're saying that David Wayne put Obama in place? Quite possibly. Okay. I mean, who voted for him? The MTV generation. Okay, Even okay. Cl- Clinton was kind of like their test subject because okay. the whole Mona Lewinsky. But they couldn't the, vote then. The whole Mona Lewinsky. Yeah. Monica Lewinsky was an intern at MTV. Okay. And not a lot of people know that. Okay. So there's a connection there. Right. Uh, Muslim extremists. What's that got to do with anything? Look at the guy that tried to blow up Times Square. Yeah. Pakistan has satellite dishes. Pakistan has television uh-huh. access. Was he working with terrorists or was he watching the state? Huh. And is this what inspired him to do what he did? So you're saying that the state has, that David Wayne and the state ha- ha- has already programmed a generation to that. David Wayne and the two Michaels. In fact, every person affiliated with the state after 1991 have systematically pre-programmed a generation to do its bidding. The state is not only a force to be reckoned with, but they are a pulse of danger that is coming through your computer screen, your iPod. For those that still have televisions, television screens, there's more to come. There's more to the story. And quite frankly, I hope I, I, I live to see it because I think by coming out this way, I've Mm -hmm. put myself, I've put myself in jeopardy. 
Okay. Well, do do you ever think you might, you know, that this might be a personal thing with you? I mean, like, I, I mean, in the sense that you really think that what you're saying is is true, or that maybe you're just mad at them. It's a good question. Thanks for being here. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with David Wayne. I hope it was enlightening to hear some, you know, sort of the little inside baseball from Troy. May be a little startling to some of you fans of the state. Uh, but, I, you know, I try to do the big work here. And certainly, if you have time, go to WTFPod.com. Get on that mailing list because I'm sending out a lot of links, a lot of information, pictures, things. I'm, I'm writing stuff every week, and I'm sending it out to you guys. And, uh, you know, enjoy our sponsors. Please go to uh, PunchlineMagazine.com for all your up-to-date comedy news. Take a look at StandUpRecords.com. Do that thing. Get some coffee at JustCoffee.coop. And send some money. We are listener-supported, and I don't want to be a pest. Thank you. Oh, see, the dick filter just kicked in. I felt like I was about to be a dick, and uh, it's, it stopped me. You got to get one of these. Mm-hmm.